a joke. Charlie says, are we going to be outside for Christmas Eve? <laughs> and I thought, that'd be nice. <laughs> we won't be outside for Christmas Eve. You have my word. Uh, we're going to be in Luke 15 today. We are going to be in the middle section of Luke 15. And I am going to make that stay there. The middle section of Luke 15, verses 8 through 10, and I'm going to preach a whole sermon off of three verses. If you remember, Luke 15 is one story told in three stories. Last week, we looked at the parable of the lost sheep. This week, we'll look at the parable of the lost coin. And I will say, beginning next week, we will look at the parable of the prodigal son, the longest parable in the Gospels. My favorite parable in all the Gospels. And I'm looking forward to spending some time in that parable in the Gospels. But before we get to there, my microphone will drop several more times. We're going to look at this marvelous parable in the middle. So starting in verse 8, it says, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, if you've been around for a while, you've heard the question asked, what is the gospel? In fact, we've done two Sunday school sessions going through Greg Gilbert's book, What is the Gospel? You've gotten index cards upon which you wrote what the gospel is. And if you stop and think about every Sunday, we really dig into this very question, what is the gospel? Now, I have noticed that there are some issues, even, even in the book, what is the gospel? An excellent book, excellent book. But there are certain aspects of the gospel that tend to be overlooked. You see, when, when we think of the gospel, we think rightly of something called justification. Justification is an act of God where he pardons a sinner for all his sin and accepts him as righteous. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone. It's about forgiveness from sin. Amen? Everybody still with me? When one is justified, one is saved. Part of the good news of the gospel is we are saved from sin. We are saved from condemnation in our sin. Part of the Protestant Reformation, really the gist of the Protestant Reformation, was dealing with the church losing the doctrine of justification. If you lose the doctrine of justification, you lose the gospel. If salvation becomes anything other than by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you do not have the true gospel and you do not have salvation. But, but what has happened, I would argue in our cultural time uniquely, but throughout church history you see it, is we focus so much on forgiveness of sin that we don't remember the gospel is also about freedom from sin. You're saved from God by God and for God. So you're saved from sin. The, the, the consequences, not the consequences, the condemnation of sin, justification. But you're also saved to freedom from sin. We can call that sanctification, which addresses the dominion of sin, not the guilt of sin, the dominion of sin in our lives, the corrupting effects of sin. 
And so the gospel is very much justification demonstrated through sanctification. You say, Pastor, why are you telling us all this? Why, why, do you, why are you rambling on? I thought we were looking at this parable of a lost coin. Well, we are, but watch this. Look at verse 7. Somehow I'm in Luke 7, little fan effect. Verse 7 says, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who what? Repents. Then over 99 righteous persons who need know what? Look at verse 10. There is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who what? What, what is repentance? Well, so watch this. Last week we had 100 sheep, one lost. The guys, the, the lost, the sought, the found, the rejoicing. God delights in saving sinners. It is God's joy to seek and save that which is lost. Anyone here ever lost? Do you know that God delights, he rejoices in saving you from your sin to himself for his glory? That, is that not a marvelous truth, that God delights in saving sinners? God, God's greatest joy, it can be argued, is found in saving sinners through which he is glorified. God doesn't see you as a little, you know, a commission-based product in his great sales scheme of salvation. No, he sees you as a, a precious child reconciled to him by grace through faith. Same story here, a little different twist. You have a lady in a village loses a coin. Everybody, anyone ever find a, a dollar and have a party? You call the whole neighborhood together. We got to have a party. I found a dollar. This is dowry money, most likely. It's security. It's future. It's hope. It's, she lost a coin, one of ten. And she went through her house, you know, sweeping the dirt, looking in the nooks and cranny everywhere she could till she found it. When she found it, she delighted. She called for a party and they rejoiced. But I want to focus on verse 10, because we'll get to the rest of it as we, as we top it off next week. But she talks about, she talks about, God talks about, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, wait a minute. Does God rejoice over saving sinners, or does God rejoice over sinners repenting? Does God rejoice over saving sinners, or does God rejoice over sinners repenting? It's a trick question. They're the same thing. Because the evidence of God saving a sinner is a sinner repents. Now remember two weeks ago, Luke 14, 25 to 35, we, we talked about the cost of discipleship and this couple living together, sleeping together out of wedlock. Do you bring it up? See, here's what happens. We tend to share the gospel with a focus on justification. You can only be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not by any of your works. We talk about all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We call people to turn to God, crowd for forgiveness, and be saved. But what does it look like to call someone to repent? You see, with that, that couple living together, there's an aspect where we need to be confronted with the reality of sin in our lives. Not, not a theological concept or construct, but a reality in our lives. Perhaps in that context, it's demonstrated by people living together and sleeping together in a position in which they're not, before God, allowed to enjoy that. Perhaps in a person's life, it's about control. It's about anger. It's about irritability. It's about uh, pride. You can go on and on. But the gospel is presenting these objective truths of the gospel and then calling a person to repent from their sin. And the evidence of the Holy Spirit working in their lives is they become aware of their sin. There's a fine line here when, when it becomes a man-made work and a God-ordained act of regeneration. But think about how often we would stop short of calling someone to repent. 
And then we'll look through some examples in Scripture of how every time the gospel is presented, there's a call to repentance, to turn from something and to something else. Now, now also notice how this is central to the story here. God's delighting in sinners repenting. Why? Because just as, as regeneration is a, a work of God alone, so repentance truly is a work of God alone demonstrated in the life of the individual. You have no capacity to truly repent. You can grieve, you can be sorrowful, but godly repentance can only be brought about by a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. So, so watch this. Yeah, we'll go this way. You remember way back in Luke 3? And I'm sure you don't because that was preached over a year ago. But way back in Luke 3, there was uh, this guy, John, Johnny TB. You might know him as John the Baptist better. He and I were pretty close on talking terms. And in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being the governor of Judea, Herod being the tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip down in Iterea and Trachonitis, Lysanias, the tetrarch of Abilene, no, not in Texas, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, and he went out into the region around the Jordan, proclaimed a baptism of what? Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And then he quoted Isaiah. He quoted, um, where is that in Isaiah? 40, help me out folks if you're with me. 40 verse 4 and 5. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain made low and hill as well. The crooked shall become straight. The rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And here's what he's saying. Get the road ready for the coming king. You need to fill in the low and drop down the high. You need to expose the hidden sin and knock down the, the pride in your life. You need to be humbled to be prepared to receive the king. You need to expose your sin and repent of it to receive the king. The king is coming. You go to Luke 5, Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. Luke 13, unless one repents, they will perish. You read through the book of Acts 238, 3:19, 17:30, 26:20. It's all recorded. You can check the verses. But again and again and again, you see a call to repent. Look at, look at Acts 2 to show you I'm not just throwing random numbers. And now I'm really hoping that I wrote this reference accurately. You go to Acts 2, verse 38. It says, And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. You will see a constant call to repent. 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 Remember Psalm 51? Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Against you, you only, have I sinned. Remember Jonah? Went to Nineveh. And in 310, what did the people of Nineveh do? They turned from their wicked ways. They repented. What is repentance? It's a mark of lifestyle of every saved person. It is a work of God where a person's inner nature Internatural disposition is radically changed. It is identified at the moment of salvation and continues throughout the life of a believer. And I want to be a little casual and back and forth if we can today. Do you not observe that repentance tends not to be a normal part of the Christian life? I mean, if you stop and think about two or three things you repented of this week, you don't have to share them out loud, but can you think of two or three things you've been repenting of this week? Shouldn't that be a normal course and cadence of our lives in Christ? 
Shouldn't there be joy in that? Yes, yes, there should. But how do you strum it up? What does it look like? How do you know when you're repenting as opposed to just kind of feeling guilty? We'll flip over to 2 Corinthians. And you go to ver verse, chapter 7. Verse 9, and it says, As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but, what also, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. Here's what repentance looks like. An earnestness and an eagerness to repent and make things right before God for his glory. It's not, oh no, I got caught. It's, oh no, I've dishonored the name of the Lord. It's, it's I am a child of God and I, I've brought slander to the name of my Father. Lord, help me make this right. Lord, show me what to do to restore your glory where I've sullied it. It's indignation, it's hatred of sin. Are there any areas of your life where you don't hate sin? And unless we recognize there are, we have a problem with repentance. For, for as recovering sin addicts, we have this weird relationship with sin where we, we love sin and hate sin at the same time. Have you ever known an addict? I think most of us have. Addicts have this horrible relationship with the substance of addiction they struggle with because in their moments of sanity, they hate it. They know how wicked and horrible and destructive it is. But then they become overwhelmed with this desire for the instrument of addiction. And they will, they will sell their soul if they had to, to be able to consume it and get the quick hit and fix that the addicted substance leads them to. And that's the rest of the life of a believer. But God's glory, God's strength, God's love is seen and demonstrated in him helping his people overcome their addiction to sin for his glory. But it starts by entering into not addicts anonymous, but addicts outed. That's what the church is. It's a giant AA meeting, you know that? But without the anonymity. We come out and we declare something like this. Hi, my name is John and I'm a recovering addict. My identity is not found in my addiction. My identity is found in Christ. And I am here today weak, struggling, forgetting, and needing a desperate reminder of who I am in Christ, who Christ is, and the power at work within me. And I need you to help me with that or I'm going to run right back to my addiction. Yes, I'm forgiven from it, but I'm not captive to it. And I praise God for that because there will come a day when I no longer have any allure or attraction to that addiction. Do you see that? And as we comfort one another, encourage one another, remind one another, we're able to see God demonstrate his power in our lives as we overcome it. So earnestness, eagerness, indignation, fear, it says, it's a, re a right reverence for God. Go back to when you were a kid, little kid, you know, when you, when you used to steal the cookie from the cookie jar when your mom wasn't in the kitchen? And then your mom would show up in the kitchen and you'd quick drop your hand behind your back and you're like, mm, are you eating something? Mm -mm. But, but you feel this discomfort because you have a God-given reverence for your mother. Now, this is not godly repentance. This is worldly grief because you know you're about to get in trouble. But when we turn this into a reverence for God as our, our heavenly father, it becomes a joy that his eye is always upon us, not a, a bummer. You know, it's like your parents, now they can set up, I guess, cameras in the house and always watch you. We didn't, I didn't have that growing up. You had some freedom from observation. 
But what a delight to know God constantly has his eye upon you. Unless, of course, you're trying to dabble in the cookie jar that you shouldn't be in. But understand, when your mom would tell you no more cookies, she probably was wrong because every young, healthy boy needs an abundance of cookies. But when God tells us to stay out of the cookie jar, it's because he knows what's best for us. He's not robbing us of joy. He's inviting us and leading us to joy, fear, reverence for God, longing, a desire to see God glorified and enjoy him, zeal in pursuing righteousness, punishment, fighting to keep oneself from sin. This is 2 Corinthians 7, verse 9 through 11, how Paul, the Holy Spirit, through Paul, defines repentance. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. And then this presents us with an interesting question as we work our way through Luke, in particular, Luke 15. Are we enamored with concepts? Are we enamored with theological concepts? Are we in, or, or are we enamored with the risen Lord, our God? You see, we can have a really good conversation about the difference between superlapsarianism and infralapsarianism, if you'd like. And I'm sure you don't know what those terms mean. They're real words. And it has to deal at foundation with the concept of, of God's electing people to salvation. And there's a seriousness and an importance theologically to landing a right position on this. But the danger is just landing the right intellectual positions because now you can tip into Phariseeism. And, and here's what happens. You have a, a larger population percentage in the church goes, who needs to know about infra and superlapsarianism? It's irrelevant. I just know that Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak and he is strong. Y you want to combine the two. I'm not saying you need to, you need to read a large five-volume work on the... the debate between infra and superlapsarianism and how it, how it affected the church in the 1400s. You don't have to do that. You probably shouldn't do that. But you do want to understand what election and predestination are. Because when you start to lose that, you lose what the gospel really is. Because if you think you're saved because you chose Jesus, you've lost the gospel. If you're saved, the reason you're saved is because Jesus chose you and he found you and he saved you. And the fact that you are able to love Jesus is simply demonstrating the fact that he chose to save you. And one of the ways you demonstrate your love for him is by living a life of repentance. But here's what's hard. We, we get together for an hour a week, and you listen to me for 90% of that hour. And if that's your cadence of, of spiritual nourishment and, and discipleship with one another, I hate to break it to you, the world's going to be quite effective in discipling you in another direction. And you'll hear wonderful, wonderful phrases like, oh, don't be so hard on yourself. Oh, every, everybody's like that. Oh, you know, you, you need to look out for yourself. There are some nasty people out there, and people are going to disappoint you. And you just need to protect yourself from other people. Don't count on other people. You, you look out for you, and you look out for yours, and, and let everybody else fend for themselves. Or we say things like, well, you know, I really want to do this. Well, good for you. You go with what you feel like is right for you. And, and we marinate in this world. And we like what this world has to say. But what we forget is what this world is, who the God who created this world is, and who we are in Christ. And we, we forget that there is joy brought to God in our repentance. And I would imagine much of, much of the, the time we spend is spent in analyzing circumstances and then trying to convince God to change those circumstances 
to be more favorable to us. And so if you think about how you pray, isn't much of your prayer, God, here are the circumstances. This is what I'd like you to do to make them more favorable to me. Let me know what I need to do so that you'll take care of that. As opposed to, you, you ever pray to God like he's a real life person? You ever, you ever pray something like, God, I'm sad today. I'm just really sad. And I don't really know why, but I don't want to be sad. Would you help me? It doesn't sound really theologically robust, does it? Or God, I'm just, I am angry and bitter. I'm scared, <clears throat> hopeless, helpless. I know this isn't what your people are supposed to feel like, but can you help me? You ever pray that way? You ever say, God, can you help me understand why I feel this way? Because I know what I feel isn't what reality is, but, but Lord, I'm going to need your help. Lord, would you help me see the areas where I'm trusting in things other than you? Lord, I don't like people very much, but I know you call me to love. This is not some sort of personal confession here. Lord, I don't like people very much, but I know you call me to love them. So would you strengthen me to not do what I feel, but do what you call me to? And God, I'm scared because if you don't come through on your end, this is going to go really bad. Transparency, vulnerability, confession. Do you realize those prayers are often the prayers that cause the most joy in God because he, he knows our heart? So as we look at Luke 15, and, and this is all preamble to where we're going next week. You, you all probably know the story from next week at 30,000 feet. You've got a dad with two boys, right? He's got the one good son that everybody likes who does everything he tells you. You know, the, the prized child, little, little Benny. Ever since he was a little boy, I tell Benjamin do this, and Benjamin do this, and Benjamin does everything his mother and I tell him to do. He's a mitzvah to the family. I say, Benjamin, make your bed. He makes his bed. Benjamin, clean up all the dishes. He cleans the dishes. Benjamin, walk the door. Oh, he's a mitzvah. We love little Benny so much. But then Chaim, oh, he's like the devil's spawn. We say, Chaim, clean up your room. And he looks at us and spits in our faces. We say, Chaim, walk the dogs. And he says, they will poop in the house. I do not care. Chaim, he is going to be the end of our sanity. Little Chaim, the devil spawn. But Benjamin, Chaim, why can't you be like Benjamin? Well, one day Chaim says, Dad, I wish you were dead. Give me my money. Give me my inheritance. I'm out of this place. And he runs away, right? Well, you know how the story ends. Or do you? Because sweet little Benny was really a sinner destined for hell the whole time along but he wore a good veneer. Chaim didn't have the veneer, but Chaim became aware of his sin. And it says next week that as Chaim, no, that wasn't his name necessarily, as Chaim sat in the pigsty, so hungry he was going to eat the pig poop, it says, when he came to himself, he realized where he was, what he was doing, and the trouble he was in. He determined to go back to his father, confess his sin, and oh my, how his daddy worked through that. But that's not just about salvation. It's also about the life of sanctification for the saint, a life marked by repentance. 
But how often do we forget that? So if, if we round it all the way back here, and you think about that couple living together out of wedlock, here's the fear. If you're simply bringing up sin to show someone what they have to do to not irritate you so much, you're not sharing the gospel. And usually we focus on sins other people struggle with that we don't struggle with. You ever notice it's often people in their 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s who shake their finger at those little kids living together and sleeping together out of wedlock. Well, you've been married 40 years. I don't see you getting all upset about people dabbling in your sin, right? You ever, you ever notice we're most bothered by the sins that don't bother us much at all or that we don't struggle with? Don't go pointing out the sins that other people struggle with so they don't irritate you. Point out what sin is before God and call people to repent and let them know of this kind and gracious and merciful God who came to seek and save sinners and demonstrating that seeking and saving work in their lives by causing them to repent. Now here's the question, though, why is that good news? Why, why is it good news that we who are saved are able to repent day by day by day? It's just a bummer sermon. We've got to get through it. It's in, the, it's in the Bible. We'll just move by it. Why is this good news? Well, you repent of sin. But what's the first thing that comes to your mind as a believer when you sin? So, like, if anyone here as a believer does sin, what comes to mind? Maybe that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous. That's what John says, right? But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. When you sin as a child of God, do you understand that God isn't like taking his belt off ready to beat you down? Do you understand that? He's not like that dad of, I don't know, you, you guys ever have that leather belt experience where, where your dad went, you know, you, they pull it off and it's like swift motion and, and then they put the buckle and the end together and they make that snapping noise? Maybe you hear that spiritually. I, I, I'm pretty confident theologically God's not, right? But understand, like, I, I would have a mom, Chuck, don't you dare. Similar, more theologically robust. The Lamb of God advocating for the children of God through the finished work of himself, not disputing with the Father. Don't do it, don't know. But when we sin, we have an advocate. When we sin, we have forgiveness. When we sin, we have a power at work within us that's greater than sin. When we sin, we're simply forgetting who we truly are in Christ and what we're saved to. When we sin, we're not captive to sin. When we sin, we're not condemned by sin. There is good news to be found in and through sin. But then stop and think about this. What is sin? So if you all want to take a walk since we're outside, I've referenced this a couple times, top of the hillside of my house, there's a big, round, concrete slab on the ground. It's got two handles in it, and if somebody wants to help, we can lift it up off the ground, move it to the side, and you'll have unfettered access to the trip septic tank. Now it's a little humid out, and you know, a little moisture kills the humidity, and if anyone would like to jump in and cool off, we'll let you have your way. Any takers? I'm like gagging thinking about this. Any takers? Do you know what sin is? It's swimming in the septic tank. Repentance is the opportunity where next week it's sitting in the pig pen thinking that pig food looks pretty good. 
that unkosher stuff as a Jewish kid? This is God, by his power, making his people aware of what sin is and calling them out of sin and, and establishing them in righteousness. You're not losing anything. You're gaining life in the world. You see, the cost of discipleship, you could look at it positively or negatively. The negatively is like this. Well, well, what if Jesus calls me to give up the most precious things in my life? What if he takes the most precious things from me if I were to trust in him? Well, you want to know what if those were the most precious things to you? They're called idols. And they probably shouldn't have been there in the first place. It's a stewardship issue. But the cost of discipleship is really the cost of being willing to give up sin in your life. Do you ever think about that? The cost of discipleship is the cost of being willing to give up sin in your life. And you receive something in exchange for that sin. You receive joy, love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You receive the kingdom. You receive sonship. You will, you will be co-regents with Christ. Why, why is this good news? Why is repentance good news? Because it's getting you out of the septic tank and, and establishing your feet on the rock of salvation, Jesus Christ himself. What is sin? Who are you apart from Christ? Who is God? What are we saved from? See, so last week we saw this shepherd with a hundred sheep and one ran away. And I just love thinking about the fact that the stupidest sheep of the hundred is the one who God delighted in saving. Now you gotta understand a parable correctly. It's not like God was indifferent to 99 sheep. That's not what he's saying. His point is you Pharisees, you good little sheep. You just like little Benny next week, come back for that one. You don't think you have a problem in the world, you're doing your sheep thing so well. I only came for the ones who run away. But the point is all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And God delights. But, but then he ends that section, just so I tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who what? Why does he say repent? Lost coin. Woman finds it. Rejoices. Why again repent? It's how God demonstrates his power at work in his people not only at the moment of salvation, but through the process of sanctification. <laughs> so here's what I want you to, to take from this this week, and here's where we see this is horrible, because Luke 15 rightfully should be preached as one unit, I would argue, over the course of three hours. Except I don't think I can handle three hours today. And I'm pretty confident I would be the only one here. I, I don't even, I'm sure it would go like this. Y'all would leave first, right? Charlie would be bailing next. JJ's gone after Charlie. Then goes Cameron, and then would just be Laura sitting there. And then she would shake her head like this. And she walked back to the house, tell me you can put everything away all by yourself. So we'll stop here, but the point is this. The parable of the lost sheep sets up the parable of the lost coin. And as you look at him, it's about God's delight in saving sinners by himself, from himself, and for himself. 
And I think we often miss that the demonstrable work of the saved person in God saving them is their repentance. Not that your repentance is what leads to your salvation, it's what evidences your salvation. And as you land those together, which Jesus puts these right together, remember the Pharisees are, are the focus of, of this, this parable teaching. It's for all of us, but he's focusing on the Pharisees, as you'll see next week. And he sets up all of a sudden this parable of the prodigal son is what the header is in your Bible. I would actually argue it's better called the parable of the prodigal God, but we'll get to that next time. And what you see brought together is the joy of God in saving sinners, the repentance of sinners in demonstrating God's salvation. And then you see this flow. Remember back in 9, Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem, and it's a discipleship course from then forward. You see Jesus showing the world around, but his people in particular, what the life of a saved person looks like. And the life of a saved person in part looks like a process of continual repentance, whereby we are crying out to God very much like David, against you, you only have I sinned. Create in me a clean heart, O God, renew a right spirit within me. And let, let's close back there in Psalm 51 and we'll put the plane on the ground. Remember, David had sinned against Bathsheba. David was already saved. David was a righteous person. He calls God the God of his salvation, and he repents. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. Ever marvel David was saved, had an affair, had a baby, and killed the husband of the woman he had an affair with? Let me, let me say that again. He was saved when he did all this. Now, I don't know what life would be like for David in a church at this stage of his life. You either have some that would be nice, heavy, legalistic, get out of here, you're not saved. If you were saved, you couldn't have done that stuff. Saved people don't do that, go. Maybe you have more experience who would be like, oh, that really stinks, but you know God loves you, and it's okay, he'll use it for his good. I guess just you know, try not to do that again, but is this Bathsheba? She's such a lovely lady. As opposed to the biblical middle, David, what have you done? I mean, how would you counsel David? Remember, Nathan did. 
In fact, Nathan told the story about a little sheep to David, didn't he? There was a man who had a sheep that he loved dearly. And a real big, powerful guy came and took it from him. Conviction, repentance, restoration. Here's the joy of repentance. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Do you remember the joy you had at the moment you came to saving faith and realizing you were reconciled to God by the death of his son? That should be a joy that's ever increasing. And repentance is the way into which we experience that joy. And as we rejoice in our salvation, the joy of God is made more and more robust because God delights in saving sinners. And that's a, that's a preamble to the text for today. Are you guys ready to keep going? We'll do it next week. Father, help us. Lord, help us to see the joy of repentance. Help us to see the joy in repentance. Help us to see the gospel as what it truly is. Good news of great joy that you, God, delight in saving sinners. That you, God, make people justified. That by the finished work of you, Lord Jesus, through your perfect obedience, through your perfect atoning death, through your resurrection, you are able to credit to the accounts of the lost salvation and righteousness that we are no longer seen in our fallen and corrupted ways, but seen on the credentials of Christ and Christ alone and declared righteous and justified. But Lord, there is so much more to the gospel because we are not only saved from the guilt of sin, we are saved from the dominion of sin in our lives, the power of sin, the rule of sin over us. For freedom Christ has set us free, free to glorify you, Lord God, free to hear you and rejoice in you and walk with you, free to delight in you. So Lord, help us. Holy Spirit, make us aware of the areas in our life in which we need to repent. Lord, give us a willingness to live with one another and invite one another into our lives so we might pray for one another encourage one another, entice one another with the gospel, not only to repent, but through repentance to have the joy of our salvation restored. And Lord, may we see ourselves not only for what we were, but far more so for who we are in Christ. We were lost sheep who were found. We were a lost coin that was discovered. And next week, Lord God, we will see that we were a lost child who was restored to his father to the incredible delight of that Father. Lord, help us to marvel at who you are. Help us to rejoice at who we are in Christ. And help us to steward those things well so we might delight in declaring the excellencies of you who called us out of darkness into your marvelous light to a world around us that desperately needs to hear truth so they might be saved. Lord, may we be good news people in a bad news world May we be light in darkness. May we be the ambassadors you have saved us to be. But most of all, may we live like what we are, children of the Most High King, a King who delights in saving sinners through his gospel, in his power, and for his glory. Lord, help us. Lord, strengthen us. And Lord, remind us of who you are and who we are in you. Jesus, in your holy and precious name we pray. 
Amen. Jay, what song are you going to close this out with? Open the eyes of my heart, Lord, is what Jay's going to play to close us. And what a wonderful prayer for all of us, that God might open the eyes of our heart so we might see him more fully for who he truly is. Good.